It's one of the strangest yet most touching stories to come out of the game of golf. It happened at Pinehurst on the closing hole of the U.S. Open exactly 14 years ago this weekend. The storyline that the media had been pushing all week had been Phil Mickelson, a young golfer then, 29 years old, in contention for his first win at the U.S. Open. Phil and his wife Amy were expecting their first child. And contrary to the win-at-all-cost philosophy that fuels most sports, professional and otherwise, Phil was wearing a pager that day. And he had promised Amy that if she were to go into labor, all she had to do was page him, and he would quit. Uh, No matter where he was in the game, no matter how close he might be to winning the tournament, the U.S. Open, one of the most important and prestigious tournaments in all of golf, no matter what was going on, he would drop everything when he got that page, and he would fly cross-country to be with her for the arrival of their first child. Well, as it turned out, Amy did go into labor that Sunday morning, but she didn't page Phil. And Phil, it appeared, was on his way to winning the U.S. Open until he got to the 18th green, and Payne Stewart, who was playing with him that day, rolled a long putt across the green and into the hole to win the tournament, snatching the victory, or at least the opportunity for a playoff right out from under Mickelson. Now here's the strange part of that story. It's customary in golf for the loser to suck it up and to congratulate the winner, even to act as if he's happy that the other guy won. It's a strange game in a lot of ways. It's customary to swallow your disappointment and and say a few words of congratulation to the guy who has just beat you. But Payne Stewart, who had just won, interrupted Phil and grabbed him and stuck his face right into Phil's face, nose to nose. And he said to him, you're going to be a father, implying that Being a father is so much bigger and better and more important than winning even the U.S. Open. It was a wonderful moment of truth-telling and promises and priorities clarifying. And it was made more poignant by the death of Payne Stewart, the winner that day who had his head on straight and his heart in right in a plane crash just four months later. And here's something neat. Today, Father's Day 2013, 14 years later, Phil Mickelson is again playing in the U.S. Open. And as the final round begins, and some of you I know are uh, keeping track of it even now on your iPhones, but as as the final round begins there in suburban Philadelphia at Marion, Phil is playing well and he stands a good chance of winning. He's leading the Open. Get this, having flown home Wednesday to attend the middle school graduation of the baby who was born 14 
years ago, a daughter, Amanda. And arriving back in Philadelphia just three or four hours before his tea time in the first round on Thursday morning. But whether he wins or loses, this story is bound to be retold, and at least golf fans today will get lesson after lesson in the priority of fatherhood, of what really matters in life. You're going to be a father. Now, for those of us who are blessed with children, fathering is job one. I don't need to repeat the alarming facts to you. You know them. I'll repeat them anyway. In America today, four out of ten children are growing up in a home without a father present. Those raised without the influence of a father are twice as likely to be incarcerated, to be put in jail. Three-fourths of all high school dropouts have no father in the home. And fully two-thirds of youth suicides grow up without the father present. Good men willing to take on the responsibility of fatherhood are needed. And they are needed today as never before. The next generation stands in peril without good men who care enough to parent the children they father. We're told in God's word what good and godly fathering looks like, what it means to be a father. The Bible addresses those questions in more than one place. We're not left in the dark to figure it out on our own, to try to stumble along and find characteristics of good fathering. One part of the Bible that's often overlooked in this regard is the Psalms. We view the Psalms as ancient poems that are mostly expressions of praise to God. And we realize that there's a good measure of petition of prayer thrown in. Uh, I have called the Psalms the praise God help me section of the Bible. But the Psalms contain instruction as well. You might notice if you look at Psalm 128, this superscription over the psalm, this subtitle to Psalm 128. It says, a song of ascents. And an ascent is an upward climb. And so this chapter, this poem, was written as a song to be connected with climbing. And it, with several other psalms surrounding it, were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the feast days of the Jewish people. You see, no matter where you start in Israel, Jerusalem is always up. So the walk to the temple was described as an ascent, a climb. And as they walked toward the temple for that feast day, they sang. And when they got to where they were going, the pilgrims sang. And they sang these psalms of ascent. So Psalm 128 is one of those worship songs the worship leaders of ancient Israel taught worshipers. As you can see, it was as well a vehicle for teaching. And the lesson that we have here is how to be a good man, or what it means to be a good man. 
I've organized the lesson around four headings, four marks of a good man. A good man is present, providing, disciplining, and instructing. Now, you can think of additional ones. I hope every small group at uh, NOVA this week does just that. Spend some time talking about characteristics of a good man. The first is to be present. To be present means to be there with your family and for your family. To organize your priorities and arrange your life so that you are physically and emotionally at home with your kids. I've discovered in my four decades of pastoring that many fathers are seldom home. And when they are home, they aren't all there. Now, some of you are not all there. Uh, they do what we used to call vegging. It's the couch potato thing. The potato is a vegetable. They aren't attentive to the needs of their wives and children. They are there in body, but they are absent mentally or emotionally. They're preoccupied with all the stuff they should have left at work, or they're pursuing interests that take them away from the family. I think with the decline of families dining together, sitting down together to eat a meal all at the same time, there's a decline of family time. But here in Psalm 128, we have the picture of a family at a meal. It's kind of a Norman Rockwell-esque ideal here in this psalm. You, you know that famous Thanksgiving painting of Norman Rockwell that has the family all seated around a table at that Thanksgiving meal. Everybody's happy and everybody's up uh, for the event and everybody's in touch with the others. Verse 3 of this psalm pictures the wife as a fruitful vine. That's what you are, wives, fruitful vines. The vine is a common picture in the Old Testament for abundance and prosperity and productivity and even, I dare say, for fertility. It means that the happy man has a wife who produces children. That's the bald fact. The happy, blessed man has sons and daughters to sit around the table. And those sons are, are called here like olive shoots or branches. The olive shoot is a symbol of promised productivity. To have sons in those days was to be a rich man, for they could take their place in the fields and the vineyards to add to the family wealth. And so verse 3 pictures this blessed man sitting at the table surrounded by his wife and children. I've told you this before. If children are wealth, my dad was a very rich man. There were nine of us children, all within 16 years. My sister Mavis, then brothers Hal, Paul, Dave, me, Jim, and Mark, then another sister Alice, and then a caboose of a son named Tom. Dad delighted in being father to so many children. I remember at a very young age, 
noticing the, the consternation on the faces of people who had just learned that there were seven or eight or eventually nine of us kids, little Sanderses. The look on their faces, beyond the aghast, was, what were you possibly thinking? <laughs> or even to my dad, so you haven't figured out what causes children yet? And when we sat around the table, it was a big table we sat around. And Dad delighted in his children. And one of the upsides of being one of so many was that I always had someone to play with. The idea of arranging a play date would have been laughable to my uh, mother. Uh, she didn't have to arrange play dates. She just told us to go outside and play. But one of the downsides of being so many was that my dad was so busy just providing for the family. He was always going and doing. He was working at many jobs besides pastoring churches. At one time, he was pastoring two churches at once to put food on the table and clothes on the bodies of so many kids. He was always on the go. He hardly ever had time or felt the freedom to relax. I, I treasure a memory of coming home from graduate school one time late in the evening and finding my dad sitting in a chair reading a book, and it startled me because I had never seen my dad relaxing like that around the house, going into neutral. But dad tried to pay positive attention to me and my brothers and sisters. I, I need to tell you he had to pay a good uh, deal of negative attention to, to me and most of my brothers and sisters at times. Sometimes dad would take one or two of us along with him if we promised to behave on an errand around town or on a pastoral visit out to a farm in one of those congregations or a trip to one of the big cities like Mason City, Iowa or Freeport, Illinois. You've heard the statistics. Some experts say that the average father spends less than seven minutes a day with his kids. A good man is present. He gives attention to his family. My dad expressed affection in a variety of ways. Uh, many of them, most of them wordless. Uh, one way he expressed affection wordlessly was with a slap on the knee. We'd be driving along down a country road, a blacktop, in silence. And he'd reach over and whap slap me on the knee so hard that it often brought tears to my eyes. It was Dad's way of saying, I love you, son. Uh, it became known in our family as the love slap. Now, I, I don't recommend the love slap to you because it's easily misinterpreted, but a good man finds ways to express physically his love for his children, to be present with them, a hug, a touch, a hand on the shoulder. Or, if you're Italian especially, a kiss. And this is one area in which I have consciously tried to exceed my dad's performance. And I think my boys and, and now my daughters-in-law and uh, then my first grandchild and now three more grandchildren have felt a fatherly touch from me that communicates love 
and affection and appreciation and, and joy in being related and pride and sometimes concern and, and, and just that sense, I'm glad that you're part me and I'm part you. And watching my sons tenderly touch their children as I did just a few moments ago when the kids were dismissed to Nova Kids is, is a wonderful thing. It's a moving thing for a father to watch his sons be fathers who are present and providing not just materially, but emotionally the stuff of life. So present and providing. And then disciplining is on my list, though it's not explicit in the psalm. God intends for us to discipline our children so that they know how to live and so that their lives produce what is called in the New Testament righteousness, that is right living, and peace. That's the goal of godly fathering, of parental discipline, to produce people who know how to live that way. A child comes into our homes, usually as a baby, and what does he or she know about life? That child is completely helpless and dependent, and then in 18 short years, that child should emerge from adolescence. Some of you are wondering why I said short years. They are short. The, the years are short. The days may be terribly long, but the, the years are short. In 18 short years, that child goes through childhood and adolescent, and he's supposed to emerge from adolescent into, into young adulthood, knowing at least the fundamentals of life. Uh, to view it quite mechanically, for you engineers, a human is fed into the system, bombarded with influences, and then he's ejected from the system 18 years later to face life. Much has been said and written about the influences upon our children. And we Christian parents bemoan all the forces that tug at our kids and shape them and influence them. Yet the single most important influence on your child is you. You, the parent. You, the father. You, the mother. It's not TV. It's not the peer pressure of friends. It's not their teachers, but it's you, their parents. They're molded and shaped by the character of our homes. How are you doing? preparing children for life? Are your children learning to take responsibility for their decisions? Are they learning that life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions? Are they learning that God, our Heavenly Father, is a joy and not an obligation, not a duty? Are they learning the Christian virtues of love and patience and honesty and service to others? God is in our lives to produce by his discipline that kind of right living in us, and we are supposed to be in children's lives to produce that very thing. It takes discipline to discipline children. It takes a willingness to do the right thing instead of the easy thing. Parenting is experiencing short-term pain for long-term gain. I remember when one of our children who will go nameless, but he's sitting in the second row, um, <laughs> was, was just a, a toddler, and 
I think it was him, but I get him and his brother confused often at, at this stage, and, and he refused to eat his green beans. So appropriate parental discipline, discipline meted out by his mother, not his father in this case, was making him sit at the table until he ate his green beans. It was painful for us, probably more for us than for him. But that's what parental discipline, providing parental discipline often means, enduring that kind of short-term pain. It means crying with a daughter over the hurtful consequences of some mistake that she's made. It means refusing to intervene so that everything is made right and, and better. It means putting up with a sullen, silent teenager. It means refusing to, to yield. It may mean feeling like the oddest person on earth when your child tells you that every other kid has a dad who lets them do it. Discipline has its pains for parents as well as for children. But God blesses that discipline. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Disciplining, the third mark. The fourth mark is instructing. A good man teaches his children how to live. And most of that teaching is not done in lessons or in sermons, but by example. Now, I went out on a limb this morning, and I gave the guys back at the sound console a video of something that happened just like last night that has to do with being a good example. So pay attention to the big screen. Can we get that bigger on the big screen? You got to see this. Okay, now here's the backstory. Audrey and Willem had birthdays this past week, and Dee and I bought each of them a scooter, a Razor scooter. And it's a Sparks, both are Sparks scooters, which means they have this little device on the back that when you step down on it, it shoots sparks. And at this birthday gathering last evening, somebody got the bright idea of combining the sparks with flammable liquid. And one of those somebodies went and got some, uh, uh, what do you call it, lamp flu fluid. But the other somebody said, hey, white gasoline is the answer. <laughs> you might recognize the, the knees and the cargo shorts that came into the picture there. Uh, uh, we won't 
say who that that was, but he lives behind my son and his wife. Uh, and, and so they, they put down this flammable liquid, and, and then the other somebody who's sitting in the second row uh, rode the scooter through and did the sparks. And, and I, as a grandfather, I, I talked about, talk about mixed emotions. The, the pyro in me said, I want to see this. The, the parent and the grandparent in me said, I'm not so sure that's what we ought to be doing with our grandchildren's Christmas or birthday uh, gifts. So that's the backstory to, to that. And it's, it's, all of a, uh, it's all meant to tell you that much of the teaching we do is by example. Now, time for some grandfatherly pride here. I am proud to say that my grandson, Willem, afterward said, Dad, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and, he, and he even was trying to think of some suitable punishment for his dad for, for having done that. So Joshua is going to be without his markers for the next week. That was the, that was the, that was the punishment that Willem uh, decided on. I have every confidence that my grandsons will grow up to be pyromaniacs just like their fathers and their grandfathers before, before them. Instructing is the mark of a good man, of a good Father. And much of what we teach is by example. Most of what I learned from my dad was not in one of his 17,000 sermons. I did the math, and that's about the number of my dad's sermons that I, I listened to. Most of his teaching was not there in those lessons, but it was in his example before me. Lessons about leadership, about what it means to uh, be in a situation uh, that demands a leader, someone to come forward and to get others moving in the right direction by word or by example. He taught me lessons about resourcefulness. Uh, my dad could make almost anything out of almost nothing. Um, I've told you this story before. One afternoon, one noon, I returned home for lunch uh, from, from grade school, and I said to my mom as we were finishing up lunch, Oh, Mom, I need to take a birdhouse, a, a completely built birdhouse, to Cub Scouts after school today because we're all supposed to bring them and, and paint them. And that's the first I'd mentioned it to my uh, parents. <laughs> and uh, somehow that lunch hour, uh, she got me and my brothers and sisters fed, and then she called my dad home from his study over at the church next door, and my dad marched me down to the basement, and we together, mostly him, put together the best birdhouse you've, you've ever seen, the best birdhouse in that whole Cub Scout pack. Uh, my dad did make me nail the last nail that attached the, the roof just so that I could honestly say that I had helped my dad uh, make it. <laughs> And that was characteristic of my dad. He was a go-to kind of guy. He got things done. He was a resourceful man. And it's a lesson that I learned from him that has served me well over the years and I think served the people that I serve well. But it was a lesson learned not in a speech, 
not in a verbal lesson, but a lesson learned by example. And of course, some of the most important lessons I learned from my dad had to do with God. I learned very early in my life that God loved me and had a design on my life, that God wanted me to love him in return and that God wanted me to come to know him better and to serve him in some way. I learned that, that God could be trusted with, with life, that whatever the need or the problem, God is more than enough and God is more than adequate. As I've said repeatedly a lot, it seems lately, at least once a day all my life, my dad said, well, it's all going to work out somehow. And that was an expression of faith for him, that God was in the details and God was working for good somehow all the time. And of course, I'm a child of God because of my parents. Uh, not in the sense that I inherited salvation because you can't inherit it, but in the sense that if it weren't for the influence of my dad and my mom, I would never have asked Jesus to be Savior and Lord in my life. So the challenge of the opening verse of Psalm 128 is that we would fear the Lord and walk in his ways. And fear here is not the shrinking away from God, not being scared out of your wits by God, but it's the response to God that is a healthy respect and reverence for him and a desire to, to know him and to live out your life before him, that nothing is hidden from this one with whom we have to do, that God is watching and that God expects to be served in the output of our lives, in the smallest details of our lives, walking in his ways. That's the Hebrew way of talking about the life that pleases God, obedience to him, you see, dependence upon him, trust in him, faithfulness to him. Well, God made us related in families for the transmission of how to live from generation to generation. Uh, you know how at the giving of the law after the law is given through Moses, God said, in effect, okay, now you've got it, pass it on to your children. You know those verses about walking by the way, and as, as you walk, you teach. You teach by what you say and by what you do. It's that legacy thing. You see, what legacy are you leaving to those who follow after, to your children? Over and over again in the Old Testament, there's this emphasis on teaching God's way to the next generation. Psalm 78 is there on your note sheet, just a portion of it. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. A good man leaves a legacy of trusting and obeying God. Now, what to do with this sermon. Well, if you're a father, you know what to do with this sermon. 
already. But if you're not a father, I encourage you to pray for the fathers that you know. It's a tough job being a father. And it's getting tougher all the time, it seems. Pray for fathers you know. And then I encourage you to encourage a father who stands in special need. Perhaps he's going it alone. Perhaps there's some overwhelming challenge in his life. Just now encourage that father. And then (coughs) lastly, we are all blessed with children. Whether we are fathers or not, we are all blessed with children, are we not? You don't need to be a father or a grandfather to take responsibility somehow, in some way, for this generation to generation process. Pass it on to the children around. I startled some of you at the beginning of the sermon by asking would-be fathers to stand. I did that on purpose. Whether you're a father or would-be a father, take responsibility somehow, some way, for this generation-to-generation process of teaching children to come to know and love and serve God. Amen. Let it be so.